I'm your host, Chris Prosser, and we're going to be moving right along in our series on the Gospels, and in this episode, I'm going to be picking up with our next major section, which, as you can see from the title of this episode, is Matthew chapter 3, and this chapter describes the baptism of our Lord and is a huge part of Jesus' ministry, so I'm really excited to get into this text, but before we get started with some commentary, I'm going to go ahead and read the text in its entirety, so starting in Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened up to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So starting off here, uh, first thing I want to point out is that we, again, see this idea or the theme of fulfillment. If you think back a couple episodes, and I think I mentioned this last time as well, a huge theme in Matthew's gospel is that of fulfillment. So we see this very present uh, right away almost. Matthew tells us that John the Baptist and his ministry is actually the fulfillment of what the prophet Isaiah had spoken of. And the specific reference here that that Matthew quotes is Isaiah 40, verse 3. And so for us to really understand why this fulfillment is so important, I'm going to read Uh, from that passage, but I'm also going to extend it a little bit from verses 3 through 5. So Isaiah 40, 3 through 5, says, A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So what we see in this text is that God promised that there is going to be a forerunner that would precede the Messiah, and the function of this person was to prepare the way of the Lord. Now, it was a standard practice in the ancient world that before a king would arrive to a city, there would be someone that went 
ahead of him, you know, a herald of the king. And the purpose of this person was to make the city aware that the king would soon be arriving. And basically, that was just so the people would not be shocked or surprised by his presence. Verse 5, the text tells us that the net result that's going to follow this sort of forerunner is the glory of the Lord. And here it uses God's proper name of Yahweh. It's Lord in all caps will be revealed and that all flesh shall see it together. And so the main point is that the ministry of John the Baptist marks what Matthew Henry calls the dawn of the gospel age. So the question then naturally becomes, how is it that John was preparing the way? Well, the answer to that question is found in what he preached. Verse 2 says that the core of the baptizer's message was repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, which, spoiler alert, this is the exact same message that Jesus uh, begins his ministry with when we see him start his ministry in chapter 4. So it's actually sort of helpful to look at this message in reverse order to better understand the imperative. John says that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, or in other words, the kingdom of heaven has arrived. And of course, this is referring to the fact that Jesus had already been born and the kingdom of heaven had arrived in principle with the incarnation. And now in light of the fact that the kingdom of heaven had arrived, the people must prepare now for the arrival of this kingdom by repenting of their sins. Now you may hear me you know, say the word repenting or repent and realize, okay, that's a super common church word. I've heard it before, but I don't fully understand what it means. To repent literally just means to change one's mind. That is the most literal definition of it. Um, and But I know that seems sort of vague. So to be more specific, to repent means to change one's mind or attitude towards sin. And this involves adopting God's mindset towards sin, which is a complete repudiation of it. So for us to adopt God's mind towards sin, we have to turn ourselves back to him so we can see that John's way of preparing the way of the Lord, or for the Lord, rather, was by calling the people to give up their sinful ways and to reorient themselves towards God. So verse 5 tells us that John had a pretty successful ministry out in the wilderness, at least in terms of numbers. It says that Jerusalem and all Judea and the region about the Jordan, they all went out to hear John preach. And even in the face of great crowds, and I love this, John maintained a position of humility. And we know about this humility because later on in this the same passage, John says of himself that he's not even worthy to carry the sandals off Jesus' feet. Matthew Henry points out that humility just plays an exceptionally important role in God's economy. And we see this very clearly in John the Baptist. John did not at all resemble you know, the the flashy pastors of our modern day who fly around on jets, they're social media influencers, they wear wear designer suits, um, they preach from pulpits that are inside facilities that cost millions of dollars to construct and maintain. John was a plain and humble man preaching a message of repentance out in the desert. He was not wetting people's fleshly appetites, but instead he was preparing people's souls to receive their king. So in verse 6, We're told that in conjunction with his message of repentance, John was baptizing those who were penitent and confessing their sins. So by being baptized, the hearers of John the Baptist were acknowledging their guilt before God, and by their baptism, they were obliging themselves to live a holy life. Again, this is really important to remember, especially in light of the fact that John's role was to to prepare the people for the arrival of their Lord. 
Now, I think it's worth mentioning that not every single person who came to hear John uh, preach ended up repenting and being baptized. Verse 7 tells us that John notices the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and when he notices them, he sort of changes his focus and zeroes in and actually addresses them uh, directly. So instead of referring to them as their, you know, they would expect to be called rabbi. That was their common title. But John, he actually just calls them a brood of vipers, and he asks, in effect, what are you doing here? You know, the reason that John asked this specific question is because the Pharisees and the Sadducees, at least in their own eyes, were the most righteous of the righteous. Like, you can't get any more righteous than these people, uh, at least by man's standards. And so it was a confounding fact for them to be inquiring about the arrival of the kingdom of heaven. Why were they so interested in John's message? So after John, he, you know, he initially addresses the Pharisees. He calls them a, a brood of vipers, but he then immediately says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Now, just a second ago, I said that by agreeing to be baptized, those individuals were acknowledging their sin before God. And by with their baptism, they're basically giving a sign of their commitment to forsake their sins. So what John is now saying to the Pharisees is that real repentance requires evidence. If someone says that they repent of their sin, yet they're willfully and joyfully persisting in that sin, they are not truly penitent. And just in case, you know, the Pharisees, they presume upon their salvation due to being uh, a descendant from Abraham, John outright tells them that unless they are truly penitent of their sin and turn to God for mercy, God will raise children for Abraham out of the stones that were likely all around them, you know, in this context. Remember, John is preaching out in the wilderness. Matthew Henry, again, he has a great quote on these verses. He says that, quote, multitudes by resting in the honors and advantages of their visible church membership take up short of heaven. And at this point, you know, just about half of the passage has been directed to the religious elite who came out of curiosity just to hear John preach, see what all the, you know, the ruckus was about. And so before John finishes up his speech, he warns that the ax is already laid to the root of any trees that do not bear fruit. In essence, this ties back to what John was just saying about the importance of bearing fruit and keeping with repentance. If someone has truly repented of their sins, there's going to be evidence of that repentance. The warning here is that trees without fruit or sinners without genuine repentance will be cut down and thrown to the fires of hell. It does not matter how outwardly righteous you may appear, such as the Pharisees and the Sadducees. That was their great hope for the kingdom of heaven was, you know, their own self-righteousness. And so John uh, very clearly calls that out here. In verses 11 through 12, uh, we start to see sort of this contrast between John the Baptist and Jesus. And, um, you know, this is really between the forerunner and the king, like we talked about earlier. And so John, he was baptizing individuals in water, which is a symbol of the cleansing of sin. But then he says that it's Jesus who's going to have the ability to baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. <clears throat> Jesus says later on, though, of those born of women, there are none greater than John the Baptist. John was the greatest Old Covenant prophet. I mean, there's nobody that surpasses him. He was the herald of our Lord. But even then, so we see here that even the greatest of prophets is far surpassed by our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the true and greater prophet. Now, we arrive at Jesus' baptism, which is only made up of five verses, but regardless of its brevity, there really is a lot to unpack here. I'm going to try my best to sort of be brief. So up to this point, the information that we have is that John was preaching on repentance, 
and then baptizing those who sought to forsake their sins and return to God. And then here comes Jesus saying that he needs to be baptized. So if you find yourself asking the question, well, if Jesus was without sin, why was he needing to be baptized? Did Jesus sin or you know, what's the deal? And so I'm actually about to give you the answer to that. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Basically, this verse says that Jesus became sin without ever committing sin. And we would then ask, well, how is that possible? In the same way that Jesus took on flesh to be in man's likeness, he also willfully subjected himself to the humility of repentance while at the same time having no sin to repent of. Jesus here is showing that people, he's really showing the people what they ought to be doing. He is identifying himself with Israel. It's not Jesus who needs to repent, it's Israel, but he is demonstrating to the people, this is what must be done. In other words, he's leading by example. And right here, he is demonstrating the greatest amount of humility by subjecting himself to a baptism of repentance. And Henry says here, that by being baptized, Jesus is really owning every divine institution and showing his readiness to comply with all of God's righteous precepts. Jesus does not see himself above the um, precepts and ordinations of God. So we can understand then that by coming to be baptized by John, Jesus was not confessing or repenting of his own sin because, of course, Jesus had no sin to confess or repent of. But instead, Jesus is submitting himself fully to the authority of his Father, and at the same time, he is identifying himself with the sinners who he came to save. Another thing I want to point out here is, again, how we see John's humility. When Jesus first requests that John baptize him, John's initial response is to refuse, basically. He says, Jesus, you know, if anyone needs to be baptized here, you need to baptize me, not the other way around. And I think this is such a prime example of the humility that should mark every single Christian. Verdi said that John was the greatest of the prophets, and we know from Scripture that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. But even with all of this, he still recognized that he had a need to repent and subject himself to the precepts of God. Just because he was given a great office and great power from God, he did not see himself above the need of um, repentance and submitting himself to God's authority. And I would call, I would just call this having a great spiritual awareness. Later on, when we cover the Sermon on the Mount, I'll talk about this a little bit more, but Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. And here, John is just the golden example of such a poorness of spirit, such a realization that apart from Christ, we have nothing. We are completely empty. We are totally dependent on God and his mercy. And I think John just really exemplifies that here. But as we know, John eventually, he ends up complying with Jesus um, in his request to be baptized. But what's interesting and what I want to look at here briefly is the reason that John ultimately changes his mind. Jesus says to John, after John initially refuses, he says that at that present time, he says it is fitting now, um, that it was fitting for them to fulfill all righteousness. But what exactly does that mean, to fulfill all righteousness? Well, Jesus says later on that he did not come, and again, this is from the Sermon on the Mount, but Jesus says that he did not come to replace or dismantle the law, but to fulfill it and fulfill it um, in its entirety down to the very last letter. Like I've already said, when Jesus came to earth, he did not count himself in a sense to be the giver of the law, but rather he counted himself as a subject to the law. 
And Jesus's perfect attainment of the law is his righteousness. And ultimately, it's that righteousness that gets imputed to all believers when they put their faith in him. And this is the exact way that sinners are justified before a holy God. And so what Jesus is saying here is it is for righteousness sake that we do this. And because of that, John ends up complying uh, with Jesus's request for a baptism. So the last two verses explain to us what happened after Jesus was baptized. And there are three main things, um, and I'll kind of go through these quickly. But first, it says that the heavens were opened up to him. And again, I'm going to reference my good pal, Matthew Henry, um, here, who says that the heavens were opened up when Christ was baptized to teach us that when we duly attend on God's ordinances, we may expect a communion with him and a communication from him. It's when we're living in obedience to God that we can expect the sweetest fellowship, in other words. <clears throat> and second, the Spirit of God descends on Jesus in the form of a dove. Now, we don't know if this is a literal dove, like if there is a physical dove, or if this is sort of, you know, just like an imagery being used. You know, it's like when we say someone ran like the wind, that person doesn't actually become wind. So we don't quite know if this was a physical dove or if this is just sort of um, imagery that is being used here. But either way, the the imagery of a dove is really specific um, and intentional in its use because it serves as an image of Jesus's anointing as king. And also doves, what's really interesting is doves, they had this sort of uh, connotation with innocence and humility, and they also had an association with sacrifice. Doves were the only fowl that was offered in uh, these sacrifices. And so um, anyways, just sort of interesting there that it says the spirit descends on Jesus in the form of the dove, and then the spirit rests upon Jesus, which as we know, after Jesus's baptism, the spirit then leads Jesus out to the wilderness to be tempted by uh, Satan, which is actually going to be our next uh, section that we'll cover here on the podcast. And then the third thing is that there is a voice from heaven, uh, excuse me, from heaven. This voice audibly confirms the identity of Jesus as the son of God. And he affirms the pleasure that the, that the father has in the son. And so before the act of creation, the father and the son went into a covenant that is known as the covenant of redemption. And we can just think of this as God's eternal plan for salvation in which the Father gave the Son a mission to do. The Son accepts the mission, and that mission, of course, was to come to earth in the likeness of human flesh, live perfectly, die on the cross in the place of sinners, be raised from the dead after three days in power, and defeat the plans of Satan forever. And Jesus delighted to do the will of his Father, and it is because of that delight that the Father himself delights to affirm that Jesus is his beloved son with whom he is well pleased. All who are in Christ by faith are beloved sons and daughters of God the Father because they reside in Christ and Christ resides in them. When God looks at us, he sees his one true son. And that's not because we accomplish that. It's not because we deserve uh, such a title. It is purely because of the work of Jesus and faith that God gives us as a gift. And these three components of Jesus' baptism they serve as a divine sign to all who were there, all of the witnesses. Remember, we just said that there were great crowds who came out. So I would at least assume that there was a great crowd who witnessed this, uh, witnessed Jesus's baptism. And, you know, they heard the voice born from heaven. 
This really reminds us of one of the most impressive facts about Christianity is that Christianity is based on God's action throughout history. There are no other world religions that are based on actual historical facts. And what I mean to say is Christianity is not purely based on hearsay or some guy who said that he happened to receive a private revelation from God that there were no eyewitnesses to, no evidence or proof of. But instead, Christianity is actually based on actual historical events who had eyewitnesses, and these eyewitnesses could easily attest to the events that we find in Scripture. And we're going to see this over and over and over again. We'll see it once we cover the Mount of Transfiguration, and most importantly, we see it whenever we cover the resurrection. Paul says that several hundred um, eyewitnesses saw the risen Lord after he was confirmed to be dead, put in the grave, over uh, several hundred. I, I forget the exact number. I think it's somewhere around 500 uh, people saw the risen Lord. And so eyewitnesses are a huge thing in terms of bolstering our confidence in what we are reading. Um, again, the Christian faith is not based on hearsay or some sort of you know wishful thinking. It is based in history because what Christians believe is that God has intervened um, all throughout history and it ultimately culminates in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. And um, the, the purpose of God's intervention is in history is so that we can be redeemed, so we can have salvation, and ultimately that God be glorified in, um, in our redemption. And so, anyways, I just think that's worth mentioning because like I said, all of – it says all of Jerusalem and all of Judea – that whole region was out to hear John preach. It's very, very likely that the same crowds witnessed Jesus's baptism. They heard the voice from heaven. They saw, uh, again, whether it was a literal dove or uh, whatever, people were eyewitnesses to this account. And so um, anyways, I just think that should really bolster our confidence in the uh, historical reliability of the account here of Jesus's baptism. So in the next episode, I'm going to be walking through the very next section, which, like I've already said, is the temptation narrative of Jesus. I am really, really excited about this one. Um, so I hope that you guys will consider joining in. I also hope that this was time well spent for you, time well spent for me, and um, also just praying that God will teach us all how to believe his word with an unwavering faith so that we can be conformed to the image of a son with whom he is well pleased. If you're not already subscribed to the show, I would greatly appreciate you considering that or uh, potentially sharing us on your social media. That is one of the best ways that you can support not just this show, but just the Light and Lion brand in general. Um, also, check out our other shows, Light and Lion Podcast. Uh, that's sort of our flagship program. And then Dakota, my co-host on Light and Lion, has a show called Waging War, which is just an excellent practical uh, podcast for how Christians can wage war against uh, the sins of this world. So this has been Theology and a Cup of Coffee. I'm Chris Prosser, and I'll see you next time. By grace I am redeemed.